Yesterday morning, in the Russian border region of Bryansk, a few dozen armed men crossed over from Ukraine and raided two small towns. The militants, described as Ukrainian saboteurs in hurried Russian news reports and later identified as soldiers in the so-called Russian Volunteer Corps, posed for some selfies, recorded a few breathless videos, and retreated back into Ukraine in relatively short order. There are conflicting reports about clashes with the incursion group. The Russian authorities reported a couple of killed drivers, a wounded child, but there are some odd inconsistencies in the footage later released by the Federal Security Service. And the militants themselves say they got into a shootout in one town, but they didn't see anybody killed. Now, the incursion itself here is fairly underwhelming, and it's hardly the first of its kind in the Bransk area, where Russia's border with Ukraine is notoriously hard to defend. In December, for instance, four Ukrainian soldiers were supposedly killed in another incursion, and reporting on that incident was also riddled with oddities and inconsistencies in the footage released by the FSB. But what makes the March 2nd raid stand out is the leader of the group behind it, a Russian neo-Nazi with a long history of far-right organizing and activism across Europe, and especially, most recently, inside Ukraine. So let's talk about the Russian Volunteer Corps and its founder, Denis Nikitin. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Before getting to today's show, I'll take a few seconds to remind listeners that support from Medusa's international audience is more important today than ever, now that the Russian authorities have designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now inside of Russia. Medusa will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. Now more than ever, your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help also in just putting out the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, so let's talk about the March 2nd incursion into the Bryansk region by members of the Russian Volunteer Corps, led by its founder, Denis Nikitin. In the raid's immediate aftermath, there were a lot of questions about who was responsible, and some observers, who were reluctant to attribute it to the Ukrainian side, speculated that it might be a Russian false flag operation. That theory now appears to be debunked. Not only was Denis Nikitin front and center in one of the videos released by the raiding party, but he's since told the Financial Times in an interview that the Ukrainian authorities signed off on the operation, claiming that his group would have been blown to smithereens by mined bridges, heat-seeking drones, and hidden observation points in the dark of night if they hadn't coordinated with the Ukrainian military. That's not definitive proof, of course, and we'll get into that later on the episode. Now, in the video recorded outside a medical center in one of the raided Russian towns, Nikitin stated that his unit is not at war with civilians, and he called on ordinary Russian citizens to rise up and fight. You can and must take up arms. We will support everyone who wants to remove these Kremlin usurpers from power, Nikitin later told FT. So who the hell is this Nikitin guy? And what's his volunteer corps all about? For answers, I turn to journalist Michael Colburn, who heads the Bellingcat Monitoring Project and researches far-right extremism across Europe. Last year, he authored a book all about Ukraine's Azov movement and the global far-right, titled From the Fires of War. For starters, I just wanted to ask you, what is 
the Russian Volunteer Corps. And who is this guy, Denis? Is Kapustin his real name and then he's known by Nikitin or is it the other way around? His legal surname, as far as I have always been aware and, and said, is uh, Kapustin. But he goes by Nikitin usually. He's gone by Denis Nikitin okay. uh, usually, both in Russian language, English language, and uh, well, German language media. Even though I don't, and it just German. sounds cooler to him. He likes it better. Or? I'm not. You know what? I'm not actually sure why he okay. used it. it could just be <laughs> like a random pseudonym or name that sure. was used when he came came out of like football hooligan subculture. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. So who are well, who's this guy and what's this group? So the Russian Volunteer Corps uh, started up in, I believe it was August of last year, August of 2022. Uh, so obviously a few months, I mean, good God, that's about six months into the, the invasion of Ukraine last year, obviously. Yeah. And it was founded basically as a place, ostensibly a place for anti-Putin Russians, particularly anti-Putin Russian nationalists, in other words, okay. Rus- anti-Putin Russian far-right figures who already were in Ukraine because it might seem contradictory to some people, but for many years since since Maidan, so eight for eight, nine years, there has been certainly a, a significant population of Russian far-right figures, anti-Putin Russian far-right figures in Ukraine, affiliated in various ways with the Azov movement. Some of them fought with the regiment in its very earliest days in 2014. And they're from Russia or they're ethnic they're from, Russians from? No, they're from Russia. They're, right. They all pretty much fled to Ukraine around the time of Maidan, maybe a bit after. Some of them maybe even before. Mm-hmm. So what this Russian Volunteer Corps is ostensibly supposed to do is provide a place for these guys to well, take part in fighting against the invasion and fighting against Putin. Mm-hmm. Now, to what extent did they do actual fighting in combat? Well, I think they they would do some. They have a very active uh, Telegram social media presence, and frankly, they have a much, much bigger Telegram presence now than they did 24 hours ago, which should tell us <laughs> something. It should tell us something about the business that we're going to be talking about a bit more in a few minutes, Mm -hmm. but I'm skeptical of the extent to which they've seen really intense combat. I mean, I, I I wouldn't say that they're completely LARPing or cosplaying, but I do think there's an element of that there. And the Russian volunteer Corps is led by Dennis Kapustin or Dennis Nikitin. If you, if listeners search that name, you're probably going to find more, more articles about him and more mentions of him under the name Dennis Nikitin hmm. than Dennis Kapustin, although Kapustin is is uh, his legal surname. Now, what's the, what's is, the like etiquette here? Because like I know nowadays we refer to people as they prefer to be referred to, but if you're like a neo-Nazi and you come up with a cool new name, I, I I've yeah I've always the reason I've stuck with Kapustin is because I've actually seen that as his name in court documents yeah. or yeah. Okay. other other sorts other information, so right. I stick with that and. If if he has a problem with that, he can get in touch. Yeah, um, yeah. he knows how to get in touch with me. Okay, um, but he's a Russian uh, neo-Nazi. I think I can call him flat out a, a neo-Nazi. He is from Moscow. I can't remember his exact age. Probably about mid thirties, uh, maybe a bit later thirties by now. As we get into twenty twenty three, he was active in uh, football hooligan right-wing football hooligan subcultures in Moscow, to be honest. Unfortunately, I forget specifically which team in Moscow right now, but mm-hmm. he has talked about this in English in interviews and podcast episodes. And I'm not 
I don't recall. It's it's sometimes unclear exactly when this happened, but he and at least part of his family, they relocated, I think it's sometime in the early 2000s, to Cologne, Germany. And German media reports, ironically enough, that they managed to get into Germany based on a visa or some sort of program for people who are of Jewish background or Jewish origin, which is, if again, I have to stress, I don't know how entirely true that is or who that applies to, but that's that's something that's been discussed in German press. So he moved to Cologne in, in Germany and got active in football hooligan subcultures there, combat sports subcultures, became a fluent German speaker. He basically started spending time in Germany, but enough of a period in his life that he started developing a lot of German language, you know, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, but also transnational connections because by his own admission in some podcast episodes in English from a few years ago, he's from a, if I recall, what he would describe as like a educated middle-class or upper middle-class background in Moscow. He learned English, studied English from a young age. So he's also, he's intelligent and he's quite a good English speaker as well. So with those skills that not everybody on the far right has, he was really able to parlay that into a lot of international and transnational networking. He'd been active in so many things. If listeners, you know, look, decide to, you know, ha- have a, have a little search for his name, uh, his involvement with uh, different football hooligan firms, training sessions across Europe, organizing his uh, events through his far right fashion brand, uh, White Rex, which technically is still around, but it doesn't have the same presence that it used to. And so he he came to Ukraine at some point after Maidan. I believe it might have been around twenty. 17 people who people can fact check me on that, but it was sometime well after my dawn in 2014. And he became active with, you know, I guess we can say with, he became active with elements of the Azov movement. He was because of his skills and his connections. He was somebody who was part of their international outreach efforts, which ended up fizzling out in 2019 or 2020. But by, I believe it was late 2019, his German residence visa or his residence permit, whatever whatever it was, is reportedly revoked by German authorities and he was banned from Europe's visa-free Schengen area. So for the last- On what grounds do you know? On the grounds of his far-right organizing, because by 2019, it was really, it was, that was a very well-known at the time, and it was German authorities and other authorities across Europe were really realizing what a threat he was. And honestly, that Schengen visa ban has really put a damper on his activities. If you look at the kinds of things he was doing, even- What kind of things was he doing? The the, the organizing of, of combat sports events, the involvement of involvement in these large-scale uh, events or festivals in Germany or other places, providing hand-to-hand combat training and I believe in like Switzerland to groups in like mm. the United Kingdom. And this was all known. This was known to German authorities and other, you know, police is services. He, is he like a skilled martial artist or something like this? Uh, he he does have, he, he has enough of a background in fighting that, uh, yeah. you know, he's, 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 he's talked about being in, being in fights, but not yeah. on any sort of like professional or quasi-professional level. He's somebody, I'll put it this way. He's somebody who knows how to fight yeah. and is smart enough and knows enough that he teaches other people how to do it. So from about late 2019 on, most of his activities have been confined to Ukraine because 
well, when you're banned from Schengen and you want to do international networking, there's not a lot of other places he can go. I doubt he would have been able to get to the United States. I don't know why he would, or to the UK post-Brexit or to other places. So you can, you can really see such a difference between when you look at articles from 2017, 18, 19, the kinds of things that he was doing versus the kinds of things that from 2020 on, where most of the discussion about him is solely stuff in, in Ukraine. And so this is, this is the gentleman who is the leader of this uh, Russian volunteer corps. And was he in the footage today? Was that, was he, did he yes, go he, with that's, it? Yeah, that is, um, I'm in Amsterdam for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. And in the, you know, Late this morning, you know, I was working on other work related to the far right because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I glanced up and I was seeing things come through my feed about uh, this incursion into Bryansk, into Russia. And so I just had a quick check. And then I, kn- I saw the picture of the, the flag. And I, I know that's the Russian Volunteer Corps flag. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to have something to look at here, aren't I? And so I go and I look at the uh, video. And, I mean, I and other people recognize him right away like and he wasn't hiding it either he was posting about it on his own channel and has posted about it even more so maybe listeners aren't quite aware even though i've written a lot about ukraine's far right in the past including obviously about the the azov movement most of my work my focus over the past maybe two years aside from the book has been about the far right almost everywhere but Ukraine and Russia. Mm-hmm. So this when when things like this pop up, it's like being pulled back in yeah. to to this world. So it's a it's a strange feeling. Yeah. In terms of ideology, because it sounds like so this 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 guy, uh Dmitry mm-hmm. Kapustin slash Nikitin. De- Dennis. Dennis, excuse me, yeah. Dennis. He goes by Dennis. He goes by Dennis. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so Dennis. I've always, I've always, well, it could be Den- if we want to pronounce it more Russian, Denise. Right. I just call him yeah. Dennis because right. yeah. Dennis he, the Menace. Again, he's never. Yeah, that's fair. He's never. Uh, <laughs> he, he's never gotten in touch with me to complain about. Like, if you actually right. see, I mean, joke, jokes aside, <laughs> if you see him discussed on far right channels, whether it's in Ukrainian or Russian, but obviously a lot of times in English, people will yeah. just refer to him as. Dennis or Dennis White Rex because of his brand name. But okay. anyways. So like what what are his like big ideological notions? Like what, what is, is it all just standard stuff? Like white people are good? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, you, like, you know what? You know what? Without without diving too much into the <laughs> the world of what some crazy people on the far well, actually they're not crazy, but what some people on the far right believe, right. I would the best way to describe somebody like him, his ideology based on the kinds of things that he's done, kinds of things that he said and, and has written, posted about, he's a white nationalist, basically. Okay. He's somebody who, unlike, say, the more chauvinistic or imperialistic Russian nationalists that obviously I think people are aware of if they've been following the invasion of Ukraine, his attitude towards you know, Ukrainians or towards other, other people in, in Central and Eastern Europe is that he essentially sees all white people as his brethren. He doesn't, as, mm. as far as I'm aware and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, isn't some sort of person who's prone to this sort of anti-Ukrainian chauvinism or the, 
that sort of older school Russian nationalism, like the Russian imperial movement right. that's focused on the, the old flag and mm -hmm. all these stories from Russian history. If you look at the kinds of things that Kapustin you know, has posted about and talks about, he sounds in some ways more like a Western far-right extremist in the way that he talks about the white race. And you see that by the way he talks about uh, minorities in Russia. Uh -huh. The way that and the way that he you know talked about them, the way he's alluded to, you know, different attacks from the Russian far right on on people of the Caucasus or Central Asian background in Russia. Basically, the the best way again, without really diving too much into the weeds yeah. of of the kinds of things that he believes in, his nationalism is more white nationalism than older school Russian nationalism that I think people unfortunately in 2023 are much more aware yeah. of. Now, how does that play in to his allegiances in the invasion of Ukraine? Because it's mostly white people against white people there, I guess. The, oh, hey, you, that's it's interesting you say that because that is actually one of the arguments that a lot of the transnational far right uses to almost to say nothing or to not take, not take a side okay. for Ukraine or for Russia. They literally, there is a free- He has taken a side. He hasn't said this because he's he's clearly picked a side uh -huh, of right. Ukraine, or at least yeah, yeah, yeah. he says he's picked a side. Uh -huh. um, but you do see from the rest of the far right sometimes this phrase that they use, no more brother wars, you know, which is, okay, that's, right. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in, in the context of, of the current war, not just since last year, of course, but all the way back to 2014, mm -hmm. I was thinking about this earlier and, and how, to, how to talk about this. For... Russian far-right figures like him, they come from a more immediate context of them, either themselves as individuals or their allies on the far-right in Russia in the early 2010s and maybe even the late 2000s as well. These were Russian far-right figures, Russian far-right movements that while at one point in time, the Kremlin the regime had some sort of rapprochement with the far-right, thinking it could use or exploit them before Maidan in Ukraine, maybe 2011 or 2012, the Kremlin, I think, clearly decided, A, that it had no use for these far-right extremists, and for those who aren't aware of the history of the far-right in post-Soviet Russia, the far-right in Russia is since you know 1991, just hundreds, hundreds of murders, hun just a really complex, large, well-developed, and very brutal scene which ironically was clamped down on by by the Kremlin, not because of any, not out of any principle, but more because I think the Kremlin realized that these people could be a threat. Right. So the hammer came down on people who Kapustin actually still talks about. Figures like uh, Martin Martin, I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, Tesak. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say, yeah, that's rather than rather than stumble through the syllables of a, a name that I'm honestly forgetting all the syllables uh -huh. right now, because it's been it's been a long day. So he talks about them as like fallen comrades. Is that the idea? Or? Yes, that's that's yeah. exactly it. People who have been persecuted, not just prosecuted or put in jail by the Kremlin regime, but in his mind, persecuted. Mm -hmm. Essentially, people who had to flee the country, mostly to Ukraine. Right to escape what Putin's regime, what the Kremlin was doing. And of course, the Kremlin also, on the other hand, co-opted some of the far right as well. And like that, that applies to elements like the Russian imperial movement or the Rusich neo-Nazi unit operating in, in eastern Ukraine under Wagner's mm -hmm. 
auspices now in, in, in groups like that. So he comes from, I think, this immediate personal context of, oh, all my friends got beat down by this regime. I've always been friends with people, far-right people from Ukraine and Belarus. These people aren't my enemy. These people in these scenes are not my enemy. I think he was able to very quickly come more to one side of the war than, than another. In terms of uh, what the Russian Volunteer Corps does, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it says it is a unit of the Territorial Defense Forces of Ukraine. Is that a fair characterization? You know what? I was messaging and I've been because trying to exactly figure figure this out, uh-huh. and it is under some auspices of the Territorial Defense Forces. Yes, but there is still some. You know what? I'm just going to call it murkiness in terms of who its patron might be or who is most responsible for keeping a lid on it or keeping an eye on it. And from sources that I've talked to, it really does seem like Ukraine's military intelligence uh, has some sort of very strong role Mm -hmm. in in terms of its relationship to, to the Russian volunteer corps. So one thing that's very difficult in the context of the current invasion of Ukraine like for the past 13 months is when people like you ask that question, whether it's about the Russian Volunteer Corps or when I've been asked about Azov linked movements or mm-hmm. new military units. And sometimes it's actually not that easy to, to see where they fit in. They clearly fit in somewhere into the hierarchy, into the relationships of authorities and patronage. And that it's where it gets fun because it's not always easy to tell. But in the case of, yeah, the Russian Volunteer Corps, the fact that several of us have had to have conversations about who who exactly are they under, who are they part of? Is it right. is it this? Is is it that? So what I've been told is yes, it's essentially at least technically under the auspices of the Territorial Defense Forces. But I've also been told, and I think this information is public as well. I don't think it's a, it's a shock mm-hmm. that there is some element of at least elements in military intelligence that are that have some much more hands-on or direct role with this unit. And so is there is there a process? I know that by virtue of being invaded and having a lot of infrastructure destroyed and also having a very popular grassroots response to this, the Ukrainian military is sort of, you know, it's mobilizing its men across the country, but it's also sort of working with groups that emerge maybe more organically and then gradually sometimes oh, yeah. folding them into the military is it like are there there are various like stages at which this happens like some groups are it, you know what the best way i think to describe it and this clearly just to, to be clear this does not just apply to the far right at all by any means yeah. Yeah, but yeah. these it depends on the types of relationship that they may have with an individual or people within a ministry or a department they can get lumped into or attached onto a certain like territorial defense unit mm-hmm. or brigade, whatever, whatever different military terms we're going to use. I'm not a military person, so if anybody wants to yell at me mm-hmm. for using the wrong terms here, please go ahead. I mean, this applies to different far-right units, whether they're explicitly far-right or they may be formed by people from the far-right, they get attached to some sort of some sort of official unit, whether it's something as part of the National Guard under the Interior Ministry, part of territorial defense, or part of the Ministry of Defense. It applies even to smaller groups of left-wing anarchist fighters who 
are active in Ukraine as well. There may not be that many, and maybe they get less coverage, but those are also the kinds of fighters on the other ideological pole who have formed these units. And none of these units are running around, you know, doing guerrilla stuff without any authority or oversight. Maybe some of them have more autonomy than others. Maybe some of them have too much autonomy, but this clearly, it's not a situation where units, including the Russian Volunteer Corps, are running around doing whatever they want. I know this is also, this is not the first cross-border raid right. by a group like this. What else has happened? Is there anything new about what happened today, or is it just part of a trend? You know what? It's, it's not new at all. There have been several, I guess we could call them incursions by different Ukrainian forces, whether they have been part of you know, special forces units or others. The main precedent for me was a case a few months ago when a small unit of actually Ukrainian far-right fighters are affiliated with the Bratstvo military unit. I don't recall off the top of my head exactly where they fit into the sometimes confusing hierarchy, mm-hmm. but they did some sort of some sort of mission into Russia, whether it was surveillance or sabotage or something like that. And four of them died. You know, they came under fire, they fought. And this this was not a secret. They were lionized, obviously, on far right channels, but by the mainstream, because well, these were partisans for for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And this was not a secret that especially after the fact that these people did this, it wasn't a secret. Maybe what's less clear is the extent to which authorities had some sort of say or signed off or at least or at least didn't didn't say no don't do this so what people saw what people have seen on thursday with this russian volunteer corps even over the course of just the last 6 to 8 months of the invasion it has a precedent so is it fair to say there's really nothing new about what happened today or what seemed a little bit unusual to me was this release of video and they appear to be appealing to like the Russian public somehow saying kind of like rise up or whatever. What was fundamentally different about this for me was really the public relations, the communications. The fact that, like you just said, the main outcome, at least so far, of this whole operation has just been videos and pictures and propaganda. It literally has just been, hey, look at us. We're, look at this sign. It's in Russian. We're in Bryansk. Right. You know, we're we're going to help Russians rise up against you, all the things that were said in the video. But did they engage in something, some sort of, did they do anything militarily related other than march in, take a few photos and leave? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's what's different about this. And I think it's probably obvious, but the main difference with this in terms of comparing it to previous incursions was that it was Russians doing this. Mm-hmm. Yes, Russians on the Ukrainian side, but that is fundamentally different from anything that's gone before. And that's why I think the reaction, well, the overreaction as it will be from Russian authorities, I think it's still up in the air what exactly their reaction is going to end up being, how they're going to try to spin and exploit it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. But that changes the ball game when it's Russian quote unquote partisans on the Ukrainian side going into Russia to do it. That's I think that, that would be fundamentally different than if the story today was, let's say, a group of people known to be part of Ukraine's far right, part of some reasonably official unit of Ukrainians went in, did a similar thing, maybe destroyed a few 
at least did something and then went back into Ukraine, we wouldn't be talking about it in the same way mm -hmm. because these are anti-Putin Russians and because the whole reason, I think one of the reasons that we're talking, because they are you know, particularly controversial Russians internationally, that's why I think the ballgame has changed here. And this isn't just an incursion by forces for, for some military purpose. So the ballgame will change because Russia can now say, look at Ukraine, either collaborating with these neo-Nazis or radicalizing Russians, or what's, what's so different about, why is it more controversial for it to be Russian partisans? Because well, I think for a number of reasons, it makes it appear that this isn't just some external enemy across the border in Ukraine who are opposing us because of you know all the propagandistic things that would be said in in Russian media that I that I won't repeat. Yeah, it's the fact that these are people from Russia, born in Russia, who speak Russian with various Russian accents, the way the way Russians do, yeah. and they are at least talking about and wanting to pose a threat to the Putin regime in a way that forces from Ukraine would not. Mm -hmm. with, with Ukrainians, they can do this, like, I mean, Putin's regime is a right wing, if not a far right regime, frankly, the way that Putin, just like anybody on the far right, divides people into them versus us, when like the individuals from Bratstvo or whoever else, you know, made their incursion into, into Russia the propagandists can say, oh, that's, that's them, that's, that's the enemy. But then when it's their own people doing it, people who are from us, from the in-group, I think it just fundamentally changes how it looks in the Kremlin's minds, in the, frankly, in one person's mind, in Vladimir Putin's mind, right. but also maybe also in the minds of, of the people around him. Like, I think it's just on a fundamentally different level. And, I mean, I don't think the Kremlin needs a lot of propaganda fuel these days yeah. and, and hasn't for a long time, considering the things it's more than happy to just pull out of thin air. But, uh, you know, I think this incursion, whatever, whatever we're going to call it, it might give them, at least in the short term, some opportunity to cook up some new propaganda about uh, Ukrainians training, you know, tra like, like you kind of alluded to at the beginning of your question, training these far right radicals to overthrow Russia. Yeah which they're not really doing because this is not a huge group of people. Mm -hmm. It's it, at most it's Ukraine openly working with anti-Putin Russians who yes, are from the far right to fight against Putin and cause a bit of trouble. Yeah. They don't exist in the numbers and in the strength to be like some sort of exile force that's going to march on Moscow and mm -hmm. take Russia back in their minds. There has been this discussion online about the nature of what happened. There are people who are who have claimed or are looking for evidence that this this is some sort of false flag by the Russians themselves. And like I've said online, I've said on Twitter, I very much don't think that's the case. That being said, I don't think some of the figures involved with this uh, Russian volunteer corps are. They are some people, including Kapustin himself, who have been rumored to or alleged to have had connections with Russian security services in the past, though to be clear, there's no hard evidence of that. So it really does not appear to me that this is some sort of false flag. So what I've argued, and I've consulted with you know sources and different people all afternoon, frankly, I 
am of the mind that this operation, whatever we're going to call it, because I don't even know if it qualifies as calling it an operation, whatever they did had at least some sort of sign-off or approval, explicit or even just implicit. I am skeptical that they could do what they did without military intelligence or other people, at least somebody in the hierarchy giving some sort of sign-off or approval. Is that because of the way that permission works for these things, that they physically wouldn't be able to get to the border without oh, no, I think, or? Oh, no, oh, physically, I think they definitely could. But okay. I think they, they definitely... risk their patronage network if they did it without permission. That's the argument that I would make, yes. And mm-hmm. that's why even if it was not some sort of explicit permission or direction or sign-off, there's some sort of relationship where they felt, the Russian Volunteer Corps, where they felt they could do this and the higher-ups would at the very least not disapprove. Now, I think if you look at some of the statements that were made on Thursday by different military intelligence officials, they're making these kinds of coy statements. They're very much not denying that these Russian Volunteer Corps guys went into Ukraine. They're, They're not saying that they had any direct role. They're not admitting anything like that, but they're saying statements that, at least to me, they really do seem clear in terms of saying like, yeah, we have we have at least some level of support for these guys. So I've seen some pushback online, some, not really a lot, but some pushback to the idea, my argument that military intelligence in Ukraine right. you know, had some level of approval or sign off on this. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but sure. I just think it's more likely than not that they had some relationship. And I think the last thing I would say is in terms of of dealing with this, everybody in Ukraine and out, we've been witnessing and, you know, dealing with this invasion for over a year now, let alone the war since 2014. I mean, I understand how and why Ukrainians want all the help that they can get. And even if some of the people who want to take up a gun for them are unsavory people mm-hmm. who are like neo-Nazis or have alleged criminal backgrounds or actual criminal backgrounds. I can understand the mindset of Ukrainians who who are like they want to fight for us. I don't I don't care what I don't care about any of that. I want people who are willing to or who are going to defend us, who are going to fight for us. Right. And I like I said, I get that. But I think when it comes to individuals like Kapustin, like some of these and again, not very many people. We're talking like yeah. a few dozen people. This is not something significant mm-hmm. in terms of the specific incursion itself. Maybe there are a few more involved with the Russian Volunteer Corps itself. But these are not people who ha- who are bringing some sort of incredible military skill. I mean, Kapustin does. Yes, he has. He, he's he knows. Like I said, he knows how to fight. Yeah. But he's not. He doesn't have military training, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Not so many of these other guys do, or if they did, it was it was years ago. And there are tens, hundreds of thousands of qualified, more qualified, more willing Ukrainians who are willing to fight. And why do you need people like Kapustin and these and some of these other individuals? Why do you need them when they're not really actually doing a lot of fighting for you? Because it just kind of sickens me actually looking at the you know the footage that that Kapustin posted that like the Russian the Russian volunteer corps posted like this almost like you know vamping for Instagram kind of stuff like 
they're not fighting. They didn't go in there to fight. Mm -hmm. If they did, they certainly haven't shown us the footage yet. Mm -hmm. And that's a question I would ask Ukrainians. Like, are these guys even really fighting for you? Do you need them? And the argument is like, no, they do you more harm than good. The people who you want, whether they're from Ukraine or from abroad in the the International Legion, those are the people you want. And those are the people who are fighting and the people who are dying for you. Mm -hmm. I think these guys, especially on an international level, they bring more harm than good. And you, you don't need them. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week. Mm-hmm.